Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 930 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. And the one seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new, let the church of Jesus Christ say. Church, I wonder what comes to mind when you hear the word utopia. I wonder if that word is more of an adjective for you. I wonder if you perhaps use the word utopian when you are trying to characterize the back deck of the cottage up north where the wind from the lake blows just enough to flutter the pages of your novel, just enough to make the wind chimes peel their pentatonic scale, just enough to cause silver maple leaves to rustle while you sit with your preferred beverage in hand. Some of you are halfway outside your cars by now. And some of you tuning in on the live stream are already there. I wonder if the word utopian is the word that maybe you might use when your family is all back together for a weekend. Or maybe it's dystopia. I don't know. Perhaps the smells of good food come from the kitchen and laughter is rippling out from the family room into every corner of the house as old memories are shared and new memories are made. I wonder if there's other times you'd consider using the word utopia. Maybe a early morning walk in mid-October when the fog is still hugging the ground and the sunrise is beginning to stream through the clouds. Or maybe it's the smell of coffee brewing early on a crisp morning. Or maybe it's when the second bottle of wine is opened around the table with good friends you've known for years. Or maybe it's the first smell of your newborn baby's head after you're home from the hospital. And your body is exhausted, but your soul is filled to bursting. I don't know when you've considered in your life ever bringing out the big guns of a word like utopia. But I'm guessing that there has been at least one passing moment, however short it may have been, when you caught a fleeting glimpse of a world ordered rightly, and it knocked you over with joy. Utopia. Some of you language experts out there know that when Sir Thomas More first coined the term utopia in his classic book of the same title, it was something of a joke that we miss in English completely. The word utopia comes from two Greek words, the first being the word ou, say ou, 
ooh. Yeah, it's a prefix of negation, we call it. It's a word that means no or not, and it gets stuck at the beginning of words to negate them. So when ooh, say ooh, is put before the word topos, meaning place, as in utopia, utopia, well, the literal translation is not a place or nowhere. Used in this way, Thomas More seemed to suggest that a place of perfection and order and love and justice and peace is in fact fiction. It is no place because how could such a place exist as long as there are humans there to mess it up? There's a great podcast in my library right now called Nice Try. And for its first season, the show hosts explored all sorts of real attempts to create utopian societies in the past century. They looked at, uh, uh, sorry, past, uh, let's say 500 years. They looked at Jamestown, the arrival of the English settlers there looking for a utopia in the new world, which turned out wasn't really a new world at all, but a very familiar world to the people whose ancestors were already here. The podcast looked at a city in India called Chandigarh, a city designed intentionally in 1947 after India and Pakistan were separated to be a modern architectural utopia for a new India. They looked at suburban attempts at, quote, utopias, as in real estate developer William Levitt's explicitly racist covenants used to make a whites-only utopia in Long Island. The show looked at the Oneida community of the late 19th century, which was way, 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 way out there into free love and resulted in a group with some very, very, very weird practices around sex and marriage, but who made really great silverware, I guess. The show looked at Germania, the Nazi vision of a city-sized utopia at the height of Hitler's power. It looked at Charlotte Perkins Gilman's 1915 novel called Herland that imagined a fictional society of women only tucked away in the Central American forest who don't allow men in at all and who bear children spontaneously and who have established true and lasting peace and perfection. It looked at the 1991 experiment in the Arizona desert called Biosphere 2, where eight Biospherian scientists were sealed inside a self-sustaining three-acre pod for two years to see if humans could in fact recreate the conditions of life on Earth and care for all of the various biomes of Earth and survive well enough to be used to create colonies on the moon and Mars and beyond. Church, I just want to confess, we've already done our prayer of confession. I got so sucked into this story about the biosphere this week that I ended up watching this 2021 documentary called Spaceship Earth, which is all about it. And let me just say, I would totally recommend it. It is fascinating. The concept of utopia, creating utopian visions of society is at the heart of one of my favorite TV shows in the last few years, The Good Place, a comedy which features human beings who have died and are in the afterlife and who end up friends with a demon who is sort of an afterlife architect and together they attempt to create an actual post-death utopia for people. It's funny. Okay, it's funny. It's not serious. But in all of these examples, Sir Thomas More's clever use of utopia to actually mean nowhere looms 
large. One of the few things connecting these attempts at establishing perfect societies is that all of them were in fact failures to do just that. For one reason or another, these ideal communities simply ceased to exist, and mostly because they invariably were not utopian to some kind of person. Take the Biosphere 2 experiment. Within a matter of weeks, these eight human scientists inside, a matter of weeks, they had split into two tribes with two competing visions for their time inside the habitat. Weeks! Within months, their bodies began to lose mass due to not eating enough calories. Within a year or so, the carbon levels inside were raging out of control and they had to have additional oxygen pumped in from the outside. Things weren't as perfect as they had hoped. Utopia. Our text in Revelation 21 today takes us nearly to the end of John's vision. I warned you when we started this series called Living with the End in Mind, I warned you that the lectionary skips over some of the best weird stuff in Revelation. And so you should know that last week we were in Revelation 7 and today we're in Revelation 21. And so we've missed all sorts of goodies from the seven trumpets and the seven bowls to the trippy apocalyptic retelling of the birth of Christ in Revelation chapter 12. We missed the beast from the sea and the portrayal of the city of Rome as a prostitute with whom all the kings of the earth have slept. We missed the vision of the binding of Satan with the chain that Jesus saw in the Gospels as the word of the kingdom of God began to go forth. We missed the great judgment of the whole earth which culminated in death and hell itself being thrown into a lake of fire. Church, I'm telling you, it's no easy walk in the park going from Revelation 7 to 21, but here we are nonetheless. And so here we advance the timeline a bit to see what the vision of God has at the end of linear time. As the war and terror which covered the earth has subsided and the hot magma and pestilence of, and darkness is starting to cool, John hears the voice of God announcing that a new creation project is beginning. Like a new Big Bang, something new is about to explode out onto the scene. All things will be made new. And in this new creation, God will take up personal residence among his creatures with the closeness of a mother who wipes away the tears from a crying child, assuring them that everything will be better in the morning. So God does for his human creatures. The first seven verses of Revelation 21 come as words of deep comfort and reassurance to a church that is being painfully assaulted by persecution and fracture, who's watched its members give up trying to emulate Jesus anymore, and many have returned to worshiping the emperor because it's safer that way. In the end of the first century, when John is seeing this vision, no one would have predicted that Rome was in any danger or that its dominating utopian vision the eternal city built on seven hills would ever collapse under the weight of its own hubris. For John's audience who read these words, Rome was the dominant power with ultimate authority. 
And so for John to bear witness to a new heaven and a new earth and a new city whose scope and scale and grandeur made Rome pale in comparison, a city in which God would dwell, which would need no temple or lamp or sun, this this would have been deeply reassuring to a frightened church. For here they hear the good news that Rome's power and might was impotent against the will of the Almighty who would one day make all things new. I think that's one of the reasons why the bulk of this chapter is given over to a very precise measurement and material description of the new Jerusalem. The holy city is precisely uh, described here to serve as a contrast to the city of Rome, as if to say, look, Christian, Rome's vision for the world isn't God's vision. This is God's vision for the world. Beauty, wonder, awe, marked by a city whose gates are thrown open to people from every point on the compass, a city that so radiates holiness that evil and sin and corruption simply cannot coexist there. And as such, they cannot take up residence in unjust systems and politics, a world whose foundation is the witness of the early church that Christ is risen, and whose gates are named for the 12 tribes of Israel themselves being God's fulfilled promise to Abraham that he would be a father of many nations. This vision of a holy city whose arrival established the final earthly reign of God was given to offer comfort to a people who were being presently victimized in another city. A people who were being executed on the streets of that city, who were being dragged before courts and tribunals in the heart of that city, all while the poets and politicians crowed with joy for the splendor of the city of Rome. The vision in Revelation 21 is a sort of hang in there, church. A new day is coming. God is going to do a new thing with this earth, and it will undo all the terror and turmoil which we have brought to bear within it. But all this talk about the city of New Jerusalem and its gates and walls and foundations can easily lead us down a road where we are wondering if John is describing an actual geographic location, like he's up there with Google Earth and the angel saying, now if you look down there to your right, you'll see the exact place where the New Jerusalem golden spaceship is going to land. But if there's one thing to keep in mind here in Revelation 21, it's this. The vision of the new Jerusalem, which is called in this chapter the bride, the uh, the wife of the lamb, is not a vision about a particular city with streets made of gold. This is a vision about a certain kind of people. The vision in Revelation 21 is truly about a utopia, no place at all. It's actually about a certain kind of community. The New Jerusalem of Revelation 21 is not a geographic place at all. It's a symbolic portrayal of the whole and complete people of God founded on the testimony of the apostles and entered into by the gates of the 12 tribes. The city is God's people and her gates are thrown open to welcome an entire world from the north and the south and the east and the west. Its cubic shape speaks of its completion and perfection, its precious metals that make it up have been so refined that the opacity of even the gold has become reduced to complete transparency. 
All of its measurements are derivatives of the number 12. The city is 1,200 stadia in length and width and height. Its walls are 144 cubits thick, or 12 times 12. It has 12 foundations. It has 12 gates. It's decorated with 12 different kinds of gemstones. Its gates are made of 12 whole pearls. The trees within it bear 12 kinds of fruit. Can you believe it? The number 12 is a number of perfection, wholeness, completion for the people of God. The very outset of creation, there were two 12-hour periods that defined the day and the night. Twelve lunar cycles define the year. There were 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus calls 12 apostles. Do you get it? Together, these two groups represent the whole people of God, what God began with Abraham and what God completed in Jesus. And so the city of New Jerusalem the renewed and recreated people of God has a foundation of 12 apostles and gates of 12 tribes. The text says that the kings of the earth who used to flirt with the earthly kingdom of Rome and used to make backroom deals to secure their power will now be reoriented to this new kingdom, this new people in whose midst will dwell the eternal God. In the vision of John, there is no sun or moon instructing these people how to track the days and months and years because time will be no more. It will simply be. The city John saw is not where we will, it's not where we will live, but rather who we will be in God's new creation. And to that end, I believe this text offers to us both good news and a call to action. First, the good news. The good news is this, God, and not we, will bring this world to its proper end. And that ultimate end is not destruction and death and war or annihilation. It is not the final end of the human experiment. No, the good news of this text is that the one who said at the foundation of the universe, let there be light, will say at its end, behold, I am making all things new. And that includes the human creature. Depicted as a perfectly square city fashioned from impossibly pure gems and gold, our future is to live in community with the Almighty and throw open the gates to the welcome of the nations who will bring their glory in as well. The good news of this text is that while the pain of the present persists, while weeping moves in and spends the night, joy is coming when all things will be made new. And on that note, we turn from the good news of this text to its call to action. It would be tempting for us just to leave this text in the distant future, a, a someday, maybe hopefully sort of text. It's a great text to read at funerals, after all. Many Christians have even latched onto this text as an excuse to not do anything to care for the world we inhabit today because, duh, it says that God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth. So who cares about climate change and recycling and being good stewards about the earth we have now? Right? Wrong. I don't think this text is just a grin and bear it, God is going to fix everything text. I think this text is actually a, here's the end of all things. How are you getting ready for it now sort of text? Like, if this is the end, 
a new rehabilitated earth filled with a new rehabilitated human race in which there's no longer falsehood or things that are unclean. How are we preparing ourselves to digest that reality now? If in God's revival of all things, verse 8, the cowardly and the faithless and the unclean and those who kill and those whose sexual sins are devious and those who wield magic and those who worship other gods and those who tell lies, if all of these are unwelcome, well, it's a good opportunity for the church to check ourselves and see to what extent we are preparing for this life in God's kingdom. Because if liars aren't welcome, we had better get good at speaking the truth. If idolatry isn't welcome, then we had better stop sacrificing ourselves at the altars of political rhetoric, cable news channels, and the financial markets. If murderers and those who kill aren't welcome, then we had better question the ways in which our comfortable lives are made possible by the death of sweatshop workers around the globe. We'd better question the goodness of U.S. drone strikes repeatedly targeting innocent civilians and children and then before we blink and go back to our Wordle games. If the faithless and cowardly aren't welcome, then we'd better question the ways we doubt the power of the way of Jesus in our lives, and more importantly, the ways that we might take action against the way Jesus preached because we're afraid that we might be uncomfortable. One of the curious aspects about the Biosphere 2 experiment was that after spending two years sealed away, eating only what they could grow, mostly bananas and sweet potatoes. The scientists inside had to re-enter the world. And what they found is that their palate had completely changed. Their taste buds had been recoded. Their digestive systems had been modified. Their bodies were simply incapable of processing the content of conventional food in the outside world. As such, their re-entry was painful and difficult. It took time for them to learn how to eat food that we otherwise consider normal. And that, for me, is a bit of a metaphor for this text from Revelation 21 depicting the future of God's people and the eradication of sin and evil. Church, if we spend our years in this biosphere, consuming only the bananas and sweet potatoes of consumerism, greed, idolatry, political glory and power, justification of bloodshed, speaking lies, and so forth, when we are one day confronted with the rich diet of heaven before us, we simply won't know how to enjoy it. It will feel like flames of fire and torment. For, for my part, I am not interested in the Christian church spending its days in the waiting room of this world, rendering judgment after judgment upon the so-called heathens of this world for their sins. Church, we have plenty of our own to go around. Our calling is to start now in the smallest possible ways, rehearsing for what it means to live as a forgiven people who offer forgiveness. To live as a chosen people who offer welcome to all. 
to live as a blessed people who pour out blessing to every single corner of society. Revelation 21 is a reminder to the church both of the good news that is yet to come, but it's also a call to action for the here and now. We live with the end in mind. This is not just a utopian vision of a fictional or dysfunctional reality, but it, this is the blueprints of no place at all, but rather blueprints of a people whose orbital center is in every area of life our Lord Jesus Christ, the slain lamb, the one whose love and grace and mercy were poured out upon the cross. Might we catch a glimpse of that new world and begin to reorder our lives in its light. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church say. Amen.